0: When folklorists talk about African echoes in American blues, they often point to Louisiana blues man Robert Pete Williams.
1: Oh God,
0: There is something about Robert Pete Williams' free-flowing song forms, wavering melodies and hypnotic rhythms that feels ancient, as if for a moment the blues lifted up its veil of mystery and revealed a glimpse of its African past. Hello, I'm Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. On today's Hip Deep Edition, we visit a familiar subject, listening with a new set of ears, as cultural anthropologist Gerhard Kubik is our guide on Africa and the Blues. It might surprise you to hear that serious study of the connections between American and African roots music is a relatively new undertaking, and Gerhard Kubik is one of his pioneers. A professor at the University of Vienna in Austria, he is a lifelong fan of blues and of African music. But let me tell you straight up, Professor Kubik is a scientist, not a sentimentalist we won't be hearing about lifting veils of mystery on today's program. In fact, he even rejects the time-honored notion of blues roots. The whole idea of roots, he says, is tenuous. Yeah, It's tenuous
2: because it isn't really a historical concept. Uh, The problem is, in history, we work with facts. And these facts are represented uh, by sources, We need sources, written sources, oral sources. We need uh, recorded sources if possible, archaeological sources. Now, root is a concept, it isn't a source. Also, there is a bit of an ideological implications in the root concept. It implies that you can study one culture within the light of history, while the other culture is just roots to the former a sort of repository of stagnant, centuries-old traditions. So the concept insinuates that one continent is a provider of musical raw materials to be processed somewhere else. Now, for us in Africa, this is not acceptable. We are not roots to anyone.
0: Gerhard Kubik has adored jazz and blues since his boyhood days in post-World War II Vienna. When he was in his twenties, he became convinced that American music had origins in Africa. He decided to go and see for himself. My first trip to
2: Africa was in 1959. I was hitchhiking and walking all the way from Europe to East Africa, through Greece, Uh, Yugoslavia, then Egypt, Sudan, until I reached Uganda, where I became a student of a famous court music xylophone teacher Evaristo Mujinda. Uh, From nineteen fifty nine, only interrupted by my studies at the University of Vienna and later by teaching commitments, I've been in and out of Africa all the time. I'm spending five to six months every year on field trips
1: just like a boy without a feather you know i'm lost without your love
0: Ah, that's the late RL Burnside from the hill country of North Mississippi. Well, after many African travels, Gerard Kubik began spending time in the American South, Georgia, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, learning all he could about the earliest forms of American blues. We have been
2: working as a team involving uh, David Evans from the University of Memphis and also my colleague from Malawi, Moya Malamusi. We traveled together and visited blues musicians in the 80s and also in the 90s. That was the basis
0: of my book, Africa and the Blues. Africa and the Blues is a remarkable book drawing on decades of first-hand observation in the field and a vast body of recordings. In these pages, you won't find any easy talk about the Blues' journey from Mali to Mississippi.
2: We have tried to split the panorama of uh, the African background, trade by trade, and also along the timeline. Now, Mali to Mississippi is very simplistic. It is as if all those traits came from Mali sometime in the past, perhaps in the 18th century, to America and were processed there to create the blues. In science, we cannot work with simplistic uh, models. It's not even a model, it's just a sort of popular statement.
0: Let's sample Gerhard's trade by trade approach. We're going to hear Big Joe Williams singing Stack of Dollars, followed by a Hausa Goji. That's a one string fiddle played in northern Cameroon. Listen for the traits these two recordings share the use of a fiddle that interacts with a wavering melismatic vocal sung in a pentatonic mode. Wow!
1: A, dollar. a stack of dollars, a stack of dollars, I use I, I am told, where well, she'll go. A stack of dollars, I use I, I am told, my baby back home.
3: And a look, I got all that love.
4: My
3: ya wa mazama
0: the Goji Fiddle from Cameroon, back to back with Bluesman Big Joe Williams on Afropop Worldwide's Africa and the Blues. Georges Collinet with you. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. We are sampling musical examples compiled by ethnomusicologist Gerhard Kubik to accompany his landmark book, Africa and the Blues. These examples are part of Gerhard's extensive trade-by-trade analysis of music in Africa and the American blues heartland. One of the most surprising examples is a song performed by a Tikar woman grinding maize in a remote village in central Cameroon. Gerhardt recorded this in 1964, and he was instantly struck by its familiar melody and especially the rhythmic swing the woman produces as she uses her grinding stone to accompany her singing. Listen to this back-to-back with Mississippi Matilda singing Hard-Working Woman in 1936. (laughs)
4: And mm-hmm.
3: You told me, Daddy, you didn't have nowhere to go. Can't you remember? You knocked up on my door. You told me, baby,
4: you didn't have no place to go.
0: baby, Two hardworking women one grinding maize in a village in Cameroon, and another, Mississippi Matilda, grinding out commercial blues recordings in the Depression-era American South. Now, keep in mind, the sonic similarities here do not prove any direct connection between these performances. They are part of what Gerhard Kubik calls style clusters that help us analyze complex movements and evolutions of culture. For example, when Islam came to West Africa, mostly after the 9th century, it introduced scales and rhythms and a kind of melismatic, microtonal vocal style. These new influences were superimposed on top of older indigenous African music. In many areas, these two streams blended, but in others, well, one or the other remained dominant. And for Gehat, they represent two distinct African style clusters, both of them reflected in the blues.
2: I had noticed in northern Nigeria and northern Cameroon that there were two very different style worlds in the West African savanna belt. One seemed to be the product of millet agriculturalists, often in remote mountainous areas. Uh, the ancestors of those people uh, had been established for a very long time we have some archaeological evidence that pearl millet and sorghum agriculture had started as thousands of years ago probably the first attempts already five thousand bc now that style is a pentatonic it shows a lot of swing now the other style um, had come to the region after 700 AD with the trans-Saharan trade routes established by Muslims from North Africa to emerging West African states along the Niger River, Mali, Songhai, and then the Hausa states, all heavily Islamicized. So I was calling the first style ancient nigritic, pointing to the population that had been established for so long in the West African savannah. And the second style, Arabic, Islamic and urban style. The difference is really audible. If you compare for example the grinding song of the young Tikar woman I had recorded in Cameroon with the much more aggressive sound of the court music of the Lamido of Tungo uh, in northeastern Nigeria, to uh, Lamido is the Fulbe ruler.
0: Algaeta court music of the Fulbe or Fulani people recorded in northern Nigeria by Gerhard Kubik in 1963. This is an example of what Gerhard calls the Arabic Islamic strain in African music.
5: seems like
0: That's Delta bluesman Willie Brown, wondering about his future and his past. When we come to the question of how African musical traditions contributed to the development of African-American music, we must turn to history. American independence in 1776 was followed closely by another revolutionary development, the cotton gin. But for Gerhardt, the event that really set the stage for new happenings in the South was the deal that went down between Thomas Jefferson and Napoleon Bonaparte in 1803, the Louisiana Purchase. And the irony of this is that the $15 million
2: Napoleon got for selling his French-speaking bridgehead in America were, in a sense, a large ransom for economic development and for new things to come in culture. The emerging cotton plantation economy then caused large-scale second- and third-generation resettlement of African slaves from the eastern seaboard states and elsewhere, and in that way, the Louisiana Purchase was an unintended stimulant for cultural developments, leading to the rise of novel African-American forms of music.
0: In previous Afropop Worldwide programs, we have talked about the way British and American slave masters were often hostile towards African cultural expression. This is why African language and percussion traditions exist in places like Brazil, Cuba and Haiti, but not so much in the United States. In his book, Africa in the Blues, Gerhard Kubik has an excellent description of how some African musical ideas survived suppression in the American South we asked them to read it for us.
2: The people who were transferred from the Carolinas, Virginia, Georgia, and elsewhere to Mississippi and the other new southern territories during the first decades of the 19th century were carriers of a neo-African musical culture that presented a selection of traits from quite distinctive African regions. Under the new social circumstances, it then turned out that individual music had a better chance of survival in a social climate where the African community spirit had been targeted for suppression. Among the various new traditions that arose, one was the blues. The bearers of these developments, however, were probably a minority within the population of African descendants on the farms, but their stylistic seeds began to sprout, while other seeds were doomed. While that is the paragraph as I wrote it in the book, I might add to that comparative research in many other places in the world, they point to the fact that sometimes it's just one person who is instrumental in uh, transmitting a tradition, who became instrumental and finally their tradition somehow became the seeds of something new to be developed in the Deep South.
0: It's the late Mississippi legend Arthur Turner with Napoleon Strickland performing in the fife and drum style. Those rolling rhythms definitely echo the region's African past. And Turner's family has been a powerful force in preserving this particular tradition. That process of preservation continues today. A contemporary bluesman, Corey Harris, recorded with some of Turner's descendants in 2002. If you visit this part of Mississippi, you find many distinctive musical traditions preserved within extended families.
2: Families. That is very important. You see, we believe that many African traits were transmitted in the Americas within families. For example, as Otter Turner, they were intra-family traditions, and later they came out when the uh, the situation uh, became fertile in a sense. Then these traditions came out and became. Uh, well-known in larger areas and so on depending on circumstances and there may be more intra-family traditions in america which have not yet come to the surface
0: Gerhardt raises a crucial point here the study of african and american roots music is an ongoing endeavor new discoveries methods and insights come along all the time and the day may come when we understand the broad picture far more clearly than we do today. For now, let's come back to those rhythms. The rolling beat we hear in the fife and drum music is certainly syncopated, but not nearly as complex as the layered percussion traditions of the guinea coast. Polyrhythmic drumming traditions took hold in various Caribbean and South American settings, but not in the United States. Another Africanism missing from most American roots music is the so-called timeline pattern a common feature in Fon, akan, and Yoruba music, Gerhard gave us a demonstration.
2: (laughs) Madenia, 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 Iwo Iola, Madenia, 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 Iwo Iola, Madenia, Madenia, Madenia. That is the famous 12-pulse timeline pattern. It's con-con-colo, con-colo, con-con-colo, colo -colo. It survives in places like uh, Salvador Bahia in Brazil and also in Cuba, uh, mostly in the religious context. But it didn't make its way into the early forms of African American music in the United States. One hypothesis is that most of the African traits converging in the creation of the blues ultimately came from the savanna and Sahel zones of West Africa where timeline patterns are not prominent. Another is that living conditions on the farms in the deep south tended to discourage guinea coast traditions in which drums and timeline patterns are prominent. So the carriers of those styles could not um, uh, continue and carriers of other styles took over.
0: Coming up, how the blues was invented, Arabic-Islamic echoes in field hollers, a Delta and Piedmont blues comparison, jitterbugs and slide guitars, and today's African blues, all with Gerhard Kubik on Africa and the blues. And remember, you can read our complete interview with Gerhard and see photographs from his book, including an excellent map tracing blues traits to specific African regions on our website, AfroPop. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International.
2: 19th century when African Americans uh, got access to guitars they first imitated European folklore ballads and many other things which the white people used to play country folklore and and that is how the three common chords got into the blues but then came another generation of uh, younger African-Americans. And they began to introduce another tonality into uh, these patterns. A tonality that had survived in field hollers and uh, some other African-American folklore. And when introducing that tonality, uh, there was a conflict. Because you cannot accompany a tonality based on uh, these, some of these West African uh, pentatonic patterns with the three common chords. You can try to find an accommodation, and they found one. They could use the tonic, which would coincide with the basic note. And they could also transfer this to give it a sort of subdominant tinge, a subdominant light. But the dominant chord didn't work. And so we get through blues and jazz history, the problem what to do with the dominant chord, they rejected it. And so it's until you can listen to bebop, it's all the time it's being replaced by something else. Bebop has blues tonality, I mean it's not Schoenberg's tonality, it's blues tonality. So at that stage, there had to be found a form of accommodation between a West African savanna tonal system and these guitar accompaniments. And by the 1920s and 1930s, the solution was there to be recorded.
0: Of blues harmony and acoustics is fascinating. It involves the natural harmonic series, which produces notes not found on a piano. Gerhard believes that the characteristic blue notes, like the flat third and the flat seventh, are legacies of African tonal systems and of musicians' efforts to reconcile these with European harmony. You can find Gerhard's summary in the interview on our website, afropop.org. What we know for sure is that professional black musicians like W.C. Handy and Ma Rainey heard these unusual sounds and incorporated them in the popular music that we know now as the blues. Ma Rainey, when she she
2: was doing some of her shows, variety shows, became fascinated with the melodic patterns sung by an unknown girl behind her tent and she picked that song. It was blues tonality and that's how marini began to learn to sing blues so blues was somewhere in the streets by people illiterate people and they had preserved this tonality uh, from uh, the west african savannah
5: ja, ja, ja.
0: Arini's 1928 recording, Daddy Goodbye Blues.
5: ain't got nobody till my trouble's to Lay down in my bed, cried all night about you Goodbye, goodbye, Daddy goodbye Tell me goodbye if you don't want me dead and mama, you lay down and die. Goodbye. Goodbye, daddy.
6: If I die, if I die in the German wall I want you to send my body, send it to my mother-in-law If I get killed, if I get killed, please oh, don't my soul i try just leave let the buzzer see me go. When you see me coming, look across the rich Mayfield. field. If I don't bring you flowers, I'll bring Cry some train don't come Oh, be some walking down My mama told me Just be pushed out Lost as a daughter Don't you be the one The missus. You know it's even why I can't stand right here. Be my baby from the other side. What you do to me, baby, it never gets out of me. I mean, I see after I've lost the
0: A treasure of Delta Blues, Kitchi Wiley and L.V. Thomas with Last Kind Words Blues. It's often said that Delta Blues sound closest to the music's African origins. But Gab Kubik puts it a little differently. Delta Blues music
2: has a high incidence of Arabic-Islamic style characteristics which came to the United States Uh, with people deported from Mali, Niger, Mauritania, Senegal, and other places in the 18th century. And of course the question is why should that be so? One explanation would be that African Americans in the Mississippi Delta experienced greater social isolation. In such a situation, people anywhere on this planet attend to create and establish an alternative culture as different as possible from that of their oppressors. So in this case, in, in the Mississippi Delta, the memory of Islamic values attached to an arabic islamic savanna style cluster, probably transmitted within just a few families, would be eligible to fulfill such a function. And it took over in at least one genre, blues singing and blues guitar, without, of course, explicit references to Islam. Because Islam as a religion was long forgotten. What had remained was a set of behavioral symbols to construct something like a different identity from the oppressor.
7: If
5: I mistreat you, now, I sure don't mean no harm
0: There is no question that the so-called Piedmont blues from Georgia, Virginia, and points I to the sure East has a different sound. No Barbecue Bob's Motherless Child Blues is a good example.
5: I'm a motherless child and I don't know right wrong Please Tell me, pretty mama, honey, why you stood last night? Tell me, pretty mama, but honey, why you stood last night? You didn't come home till the sun was shining
1: bright.
0: Piedmont Blues from Barbecue Bob of Georgia. Now, if we are hearing less of the Arabic Islamic style here, it might be because the musicians who created this music traced their heritage to parts of Africa where Islam had less impact. But Gerhard says the explanation could have less to do with life in Africa than with life in America. Piedmont
2: firms were small unlike the vast cotton producing plantations along the mississippi river and african-american farmers long established had better chances for work and for enterprises race relations were apparently also much better such a cultural climate could have resulted in the fact that there was much more borrowing musically between these cultures and would explain why musical traditions in Piedmont seem to be a little more European in tonality. Uh, We can judge from the recordings made by John Lomax in the 1930s uh, for example, the wonderful banjo accompanied songs of Jimmy Strothers present a repertoire that could be considered a product of the post Reconstruction South. He was born around 1880.
7: Used to work on like Hottie was his name. Want me to make full loads of day, doggone you will lame. Went out early in the morning, got scalded, stayed all day. When I returned in the evening, these are the words he said: Where in the world, is you been all day. Here's your money, get away with that mule and that forty-bushel come. Old Mike Hardy, he was mad, Give my money and he got bad with that mule and that forty-bushel come. He was if Mike Hardy was his name. Want me to make for loads of day and dog on mule lambs. When Well, all right in the mornin' Gustav has stayed all day. I return in the evening, these are the words he'd say. Why ain't it, why ain't you been all day? Here's your money, get away with that new and that poor bush old Kong.
2: Another of those people recorded, Raleigh Lee Johnson's Wild Ox Moan, is a field hauler demonstrating that the West African savannah tonality was surviving not only in the Delta, but even in places like Richmond, Virginia, by 1936.
5: Yeah, go on a little bit. Yeah. Oh, she's not my woman, just from my
4: home.
5: I give her my money just to
4: help along.
5: I got my dear lover and a lonely life. Oh, knock me in the
0: bottom the don't fly. Gerard Kubik and David Evans have recently done groundbreaking research on the origins of one of the signature aspects of yeah, blues, yeah, slide guitar. This is a sound that's gone all over the world, including to Hawaii, and then back to Africa to turn up in places like Zimbabwe, Malawi, Congo, and of course, the Juju music of King Ade in Nigeria. Gerhardt says the whole tradition of sliders began in the raffia zone in West Central Africa.
2: Let's say roughly from eastern Nigeria into Cameroon, into Gabon and northern Congo. That is an area where the raffia palm is a most useful plant used for making household utensils Chairs, tables, beds, including many musical instruments.
0: Gerhardt recorded an instrument called Mpeli in the Central African Republic in
4: 1966.
2: <laughs> From a raffia palm leaf, a stem, you peel off the string. And then this instrument until now is played by children, two children, one holding a slider and gliding up and down the string, and the other one is striking the string with two sticks. Now, when this idea came to America, it changed a little bit. uh, From an instrument that was played
0: by two people, it became an instrument played solo. The earliest American slide instruments were mounted to a board or to the side of a house. But, of course, we know where this tradition ended up, in the hands of masters, like North Mississippi's Jesse May Hamphill. E 2006 Rest in peace baby you sure left a lot of soul behind Well time's running out in our hip-dip tour of Africa and the blues No surprise this is a big subject and it's full of surprises For example did you know that the all but vanished jitterbug or didley bow Played here by Napoleon Strickland is a mouth bowl that indicates the presence in America of slave musicians from Bantu speaking Central Africa, most likely Angola. Did you know that? evidence also points to Bantu retentions, likely from Angola, for example in the Georgia Sea Islands. But that's not all. Gerhard says the African American family keeps growing larger.
2: There is a late um, 19th century source that also points to the fact that Mozambicans were taken to the United States when the slave trade was over. And that's the interesting thing. When the slave trade was over, all of a sudden areas which had not been touched by the slave trade patterns were uh, in a sense exploited and some people were deported from there to the United States. Trait-by-trait analysis pointed out uh, that there are certain elements also in Mozambican, or let's say in a general sense in Southeast African, string instrument playing and singing uh, that have strange parallels with the blues. I mean, it could be that it's because of the Arabic background due to the Indian Ocean Trading Network that you get uh, these stylistic similarities. But there could also be a direct link. And I found it strange that so many Americans a uh, fine limited fundo from Southeast Africa, who died in the mid 1980s, and had learned his vocal style from his uncle, who was a fiddle player. That he sounds so much blues
6: like.
3: <laughs>
0: Gerhard Kubik also has some thoughts on literary aspects of the blues story, like the famous legend about Robert Johnson meeting the devil at the crossroads.
2: might know that I'm also a psychoanalyst. So to me, it appeared that human psychology is what has been overlooked by those writers who talk about Robert Johnson and the pact with the devil and so on. Uh, one mustn't forget that Robert Johnson was living in a social environment full of beliefs in the supernatural and also fear of sorcery, of witchcraft. Uh, that is clear from the imagery of his songs. Now, the devil is a Christian and an Islamic concept. Let's say it's a Near Eastern concept. But underneath, there are African ideas. In his case, it was said that the pact was with a, probably male sort of transcendental being, the devil. But in West Africa, by comparison, you get uh, a pact with a female being, the so-called Mammy Water, with whom a musician can enter a liaison in order to be successful. And of course, after some years, so goes the saying, Mammy Water will lure him into the sea to die. There is a famous song, by a Nigerian highlife composer of the 1960s, Victor Uwaifo. If you see Mamiwata, if you see Mamiwata, never, never you run away. And then comes the guitar and imitates the mermaid's reply. So I see a parallel. When someone is famous in music and dies early, the society constructs an explanation. In West Africa, they would have said it was the Mamiwata. In the United States, they had to say it's the devil.
0: In a moment, the blues goes home to Africa. But first, funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art.
1: Kaya, yer go near somebody, Eronya, like a coo boy, Gamaliganda, the Yer Maliga, Kaya, Yer go sambadi.
0: From the dawn of recording technology, the blues and jazz have gone back to Africa, on records and in the hands of musicians like Louis Armstrong, who toured West Africa in 1956. Ever since Africans began to hear themselves reflected back in American music, the dialogue between cultures has become a two-way street. Take the case of Mali's Ali Touré. We might we might go back to the starts of Ali Touré
2: in the uh, 1960s in Paris. He was attracted by John Lee Hooker's blues and so on, and French friends persuaded him to recognize that there was similarity between his own guitar style, especially in songs sung in song high and Fulfulde and blues tonality. That's usual. I have met many people who you play anything and they say it's the blues. You see, everywhere in Europe, you can find such people. So in a sense, I believe that Ali Farka was pushed into this. In any case, he liked John Lee Hooker and he began to uh, work a bit on uh, integrating some of Hooker's um, melodies and so on into his own style. Later marketing people came and they uh, tried uh, to promote him on the basis that he represented uh, history, he represented connections to the blues, he was the source, he was the roots and so on and so on. In, in the last years of his life, Alifar Katuri began to reject uh, these ideas. He became conscious of the rich tradition uh, he was using in his own style and out of which he was developing something new. I mean, uh, Ali that it's late 20th century, it is not late
0: 19th century. Gerhard's point is well taken. We have to see musicians as individuals in their own right and not try to slot them into neat and tidy romantic narratives. Special thanks to Professor Gerhard Kubik for all his help with this program. Thanks also to Gerhard's colleagues, David Evans and Moya Malamusi for their great work. And to the folks at ORF, Austrian Public Radio in Vienna, and WNPR in Hartford, Connecticut, for engineering our interview with Gerhard. Remember, you can read that complete interview and see photographs from Africa and the blues and an extensive discography on our website, afropop.org. To share this program with a friend or to listen to it again, we have a podcast of program highlights. Info on how to sign up for our podcast at afropop.org. My Afropop partner, Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and co production for this program by Banning Air. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our operations manager is Misha Turner. And I'm Georges Collinet.